This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I'm Jessan Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, let's begin by letting all of our viewers and listeners uh, who are Muslim, we want to wish you all Ramadan Karim, Ramadan Mubarak. We're in the midst of Ramadan now for Muslims all over the world. And we send our blessings to everybody who is uh, celebrating now. So that's going to actually relate a little bit to one of our segments today, which I'll get to in a minute. But we're going to be covering the unprecedented wave of pro-democracy protests that are washing over the apartheid state right now in Israel. And of course, no one is addressing the elephant in the room, which is the apartheid state, the occupation of Palestine, the oppression of Palestinians, the ongoing land theft. So we're, we're going to talk about that. I should also add, there is kind of breaking news right now. I just saw it go over the wire within the last hours that Benjamin Netanyahu has in fact announced that he plans to delay the implementation of the draconian measures on the judicial system uh, in the apartheid state. So we'll, we're going to circle back to that in some in some way because the political implications are really pretty dramatic for Netanyahu right now. But before we get to all of that, <clears throat> we're going to go to a really great interview you did with Dr. Hatem Bazian. Uh, you know, Dr. Bazian, whom we've interviewed multiple times on the show, is going to talk about the Muslim connection to Jerusalem and the Israeli attempts to erase that connection. You know, every time around Ramadan, you know, the Israeli defenses uh, raid the Haram Sharif, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they've done that again during Ramadan. He's going to discuss his recent article also, Can Ramadan Be a Decolonization Moment? Really wonderful to hear uh, Dr. Bazian speak about these topics, Jamal. That's right, Jess. And I will comment because I got also some, uh, a, a, someone sent me a document about that so-called Netanyahu postponement, a, a letter to Ben Gavir, basically uh, putting under his command the National Guard uh, <laughs> as a quid pro quo to postpone this. Uh, but first, let's listen to Dr. Hatem Bazian. Ramadan began on March 23rd, the start of the ninth month of the Islamic lunar calendar, one of the five pillars of Islam. It's observed by an entire month of fasting from sunrise to sunset. This observance induces empathy for the suffering of others, as well as self-reflection and re-examination. This year, Ramadan comes during the most brutal assaults on and desecrations of non-Jewish holy sites in Jerusalem by Zionist colonialist settlers. Violent incursions into the Haram al-Sharif by Itmar bin Gvir and attendant settlers, as well as destructions of churches are accelerating. However, the connection to Jerusalem is inextricable from the conscience and identity of Muslims, and two of its holiest sites have graced the city for almost two millennium. Through the lens of colonialism, one can also trace ways in which Islamic values have been reorganized into a framework of modern Western values. Joining us this week on Arab Talk is the colonial Islamic thinker, Dr. Hatem Bazian. He is the executive director of the Islamophobia Studies Center, as well as a professor at Zaytuna College and lecturer in Middle Eastern languages and cultures and Asian American studies at UC Berkeley. He's the author of the book, Palestine, 
it is something colonial. In his recent article, Can Ramadan Be a Decolonization Moment? Dr. Bazian describes how colonialism has insinuated itself into the fabric and psyche of Islamic society and what the result is. Welcome to Arab Talk again, Dr. Hatim. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jamal, for having me. It's good to see you. It seems that much of the world will suffer uh, for a long time to come from both the aftermath of as well as ongoing colonialism. Let's talk about colonialism in stratas, starting with the psyche. In your article, uh, you talk about modern Islam as distinct from the traditional Islam and as something that evolved within colonial parameters. Explain this. Well, if we think about the the imprint of colonization on the uh, Muslim world, but also around the globe, uh, colonization was not only a military project, and I think many people fail to recognize at the core of it was a, an intellectual project uh, from the Western world, an economic project, and uh, later on uh, made its uh, presence by military forces. It sought to transform and transfigure the world in ways and in, uh, way, in shapes to reflect Eurocentric ideas and Eurocentric priorities with race and racism, whiteness, uh, capitalism, industrialization, and the commodification of the human as one of its outcomes. And therefore, when we think of Islam and Muslims, we think that the uh, European forces that were colonizing the Muslim world left, and therefore it's all over. The education system in the Muslim world is still uh, colonial in nature, if it's, it actually continues to be. The economy is colonial. The political structure is colonial. And I would say our selectivity of religious discourses is colonial. So in this sense, uh, we cannot really speak of modern Muslim and modern Islamic world without actually engaging in the discussion about what colonization meant and how it actually impacted and continues to disfigure uh, the Muslim world. And I think that's what my reference in terms of thinking of the modern Muslim and modern Islam as being an outcome of this colonial process. Let's dig deeper a little bit into this when you describe how just enough token features of ancient Islam serve almost as window dressing to give authenticity to modern Islam, what examples of this uh, be? Uh, well, for example, I think just delving into uh, the uh, political structure that we see in many parts of the Muslim world. So immediately they say, well, obedience to the ruler uh, is a requirement within Islamic texts. And therefore they use the classical text to leverage a post-colonial state structure that is inherently set up by the colonization, if you think about the impact of the Sykes-Picot Agreement and how it created states and elites that were wedded into this colonial structure, if you think about uh, states that were born in North Africa, and so on. So this becomes leveraging a, a classical text that it's, when it's in its classical lens, it 
put it into a society that was coherent, meaning that it was a completely functioning society within that lens. It, when it is used in the contemporary period, is really is asking for maintaining that colonial, colonially birthed state structure in the contemporary period without questioning. Recently, I think we are seeing uh, this notion of normalization with Israel under the Abrahamic Accord, and therefore also lifting this notion of obedience to the ruler, as well as segments or textual aspects of Islam about and all this in order to fit into the Abrahamic Accords. So Islam becomes what the state in its post-colonial structure says it is, which is often is in line with the colonial legacy, colonial, colonial politics, and so on. A second aspect is also in the realm of economics. Uh, much of our economics in the Muslim world, uh, it has the banner of saying Muslim banks or Muslim economics. It, in reality, it's an economics that vested in the global capitalist system with neoliberal economics, and it just vested with uh, pieces of the ancient terminologies, classical, either Quranic texts, Hadith texts, or fiqh, to really give birth to a colonial economy uh, vested with modernity, uh, vested with capitalism as it's been articulated in the Western world. So in essence, the uh, hidden hand of Adam Smith becomes the divine hand articulating itself in the market dressed up in Islamic terminology. Let me say most of what we say today as Islamic banking, it's actually banks that are supported by the major uh, banks uh, that in, engage in usury. Uh, and they just have a section in their bank that deals with Islamic banking. They engage in all types of what you call uh, linguistic gymnastics in order to transpose an same contract that you have in a, in a Western usarious bank with Islamic terminology and using mudarab musharaka, all these terms. So in this sense, the leveraging of the ancient in order to actually dress up the modern capitalist, industrial, Eurocentric, colonial structure uh, to fit into the contemporary period. How do you envision realigning uh, with a more authentic Islam? Well, I said that it just, we do have to go and re-navigate. And part of the navigating the past, which is a challenge because you cannot reconstruct the past in the way it is, uh, first, we have to do an inventory of what it is that we actually hold in our mind in the contemporary period, uh, and then to try to stitch together a mosaic of our uh, past, while also dealing with the contradictions, complexities, uh, difficulties, challenges that the present imposes upon us. So I am not a person that will say what we need is just a neo-traditionalist, a neo-orthodox, just bringing the past and just put it and say, here's what it is. Uh, uh, both history, society, as well as dynamics have to be dealt with in order for us uh, to do it. But the first act for me is to think that we have a problem because many... So, so do, you, do, you, do you think going back to the origins is more relevant uh, than refocusing on what the intent was yet evolving forward through the understanding? Well, I think it's it's a combination. I think this tension between the intent of the text versus the text is a phenomenon that have existed throughout Islamic history, even in the articulation of the law. 
And what we need is to look at uh, visiting because no society can exist without actually uh, having a centering of its historical past and how it evolved. So for me, it's it's not an uh, either or, but rather a combination of both, uh, because in certain times the text would uh, have would have limitation, and that's our, again in our classical period the whole phenomena or the whole development of qiyas and a logical reasoning in terms of the law, ijma' that read maslaha amma overarching public interest. Uh, there's many principles that emerge that went beyond the text itself. So the notion that uh, we could actually do without uh, using all the variety of tools that both looks at the text and the intent uh, in this, uh, uh, there's a whole field of the overarching um, uh, uh, objectives of Sharia, maqasid al-Sharia where we look at the overarching principles uh, because we lack a particular text to guide the society. So we go beyond the text to over to look at overarching objectives. So all these tools have to be examined and possibly also the development of new tools and new mechanisms to, to guide a society. But what we, again, I'm insisting that we do have first to do an inventory of our colonial mindset, our colonial education, our colonial understanding of the human, our colonial understanding of the world that we in, the, our understanding of how we relate to uh, property, to uh, how we relate to wealth. All these are in the modern conception in the minds of a Muslim is birthed out of the colonial era. And then we could begin to actually stitch together some coherent understanding of the past as it applies to our contemporary period. Let's connect this with the very real ongoing physical colonization in Palestine by Zionist colonial settlers. They have their sights set on not only on settling, but superimposing a manufactured identity, a Zionist one, on Islamic historical sites and buildings integral to the Muslim psyche and conscience. You've written about uh, the significance of Jerusalem to Islam. Explain uh, this history. Jerusalem is a major, you know, in Islamic, in, in the Arabic and Islamic terminology, it's Al-Quds, that which is sacred, that which uh, has uh, been uh, removed from any blemish. And one of the 99 divine names, Al-Quddus, the one that gives sacredness, or even the term in Arabic of uh, Jerusalem, is been driven from one of the 99 attributes of the divine. Uh, so Muslims throughout uh, their history uh, have uh, both demonstrated veneration in their own <clears throat> act, as well as uh, expressing gener- veneration by building and uh, uh, putting awqaf endowments to uh, benefit the society. So it's not surprising that uh, in Jerusalem, you have the uh, Zawi al-Hindiya, the Indian uh, uh, religious site in there that they visit. For a, for a long period of time, we had the Moroccan quarter, which had been obliterated after the Israeli uh, military and Zionists took over Jerusalem in 1967. You have the Bukhara from Bukhara. There's a small community from Bukhara. So Jerusalem always have attracted the Muslim uh, expression of veneration as well as 
contributing to his building. Now, the Zionists themselves are a product of Eurocentricity, and we need to understand that. They wanted to bring in uh, Eurocentric modernity, uh, capitalism, uh, secularity against traditional uh, rabbinic Judaism, and colonization. And therefore, what we see in here is the contradiction that on the one hand, they're claiming to venerate the religious, while they themselves were constructed as an, uh, a profane anti-religious uh, construct with a colonial lens. And uh, the attempt to try to take religious sites that belongs to Muslims and Christians as well, it's a way to try to project a nationalist, uh, ultra-nationalist uh, project where the veneration of the site becomes an affirmation of the construction of this new modern Zionist Jewish person that is no longer attached to the book, but attached to my power and uh, physical uh, domination. And the Palestinians becomes those who are standing in the way that needs to be dis uh, dispossessed. Uh, one uh, Often when you speak about Zionism, people try to complicate the issue, say it's a complicated. I say nuclear physics is complicated, fuzzy math is complicated. There's nothing complicated about colonization that is dressed up in religious terminology. Uh, we have the white man burden uh, relative to the Western world that went out around the world, uh, browsing around, taking over states and countries, saying that it's their responsibility and it's, it's their right to redeem these lands and bring people under the banner of the church. So what we're having in here is, again, is the Zionist uh, burden uh, that is infused with this colonial mindset. And every colonial project had genocide and transfer. And what we're experiencing, the Palestinians today are experiencing, we need to say it is actually an unfolding genocide that begins in 1917 and is still ongoing till today. And with it is also the transfer. So. Uh, this is what we are seeing in relations to Jerusalem as a religious site, religious site veneration that Muslims have always venerated both by their acts of devotion as well as by contributing to its building and simultaneously open to other religious communities. So that's why we still have the Christian churches in Jerusalem. That's why we had still had uh, Jewish communities that were living in uh, Palestine while uh, the notion that Israel wants to have exclusivity by actually erasing the religious uh, specificity of uh, Jerusalem within its Muslim uh, uh, specificity, within its Christian specificity. Yesterday, there was a photo that was from the municipality of Jerusalem, where actually it shows the erasure of Al-Aqsa Mosque completely in the picture. That's in essence is a genocidal, right? Committing religious genocide toward uh, Palestinians and toward Muslims. And it is actually the pinnacle of Islamophobic discourse, I may add, because it's not only that you are uh, contemplating the genocide toward the population, but also in your contemporary discourse, you're erasing the religious side by affirming uh, this uh, settler colonial mindset in policy.
Well, sadly, that picture is not far-fetched because in the front of the picture, and you've mentioned this earlier, they've, they destroyed and removed uh, <clears throat> buildings from the Moroccan and Hart al-Sharaf uh, quarters in Jerusalem sure. going back to the uh, Fatimid uh, period, you know, historical buildings. And that's why today when you look at, from that angle, you look at the, the uh, Haram al-Sharif, you see that uh, uh, grand plaza that never existed before. In fact, uh, my mom's family lived in, in that neighborhood for uh, for centuries, Al-Qutub family, that they have their properties there. The, the thing is that there was a court case in 1930 because there was uh, clashes or riots that took place in 1929 on what's called the Ha'it al-Buraq. Uh, uh, That's what it's its name. And it's also that the Jewish community used to attend to it as a Ha'it uh, al-Mabka, the Wailing Wall. Uh, the case was taken by the British, and the British issued the uh, 1930-31 report, commission report on the Wailing Wall uh, Commission. And the report said that this property, meaning even the Wailing Wall area, uh, that there is a Moroccan property. And the Moroccan community initially allowed uh, the uh, some Jewish members to uh, come to the Wailing Wall. and. Uh, without actually having the right to put any physical feet, uh, permanent uh, fixtures or anything. And the, there was a violation of that. And that's where the clashes developed. So the report actually illustrates that this all property belonged to the Moroccan generation after generation. Uh, and in 1967, just after Israel entered into Jerusalem, completely uh, wiped out that uh, community and the historical uh, side that there that the Moroccans began to build uh, almost a thousand years before uh, by establishing Al-Qaf religious endowments. Let's let's talk a little <clears throat> bit about Jerusalemites uh, and uh, the recent claims. Of course, everybody have read or seen uh, uh, someone like Smotrich uh, uh, claiming that he's the original. Palestinian, someone's, uh, someone whose family hails from, <clears throat> from Ukraine. Uh, I don't think many uh, people realize that uh, many of the Muslims in Palestine uh, converted from Christianity. So they were already there hundreds of years prior to the ar- arrival of Islam. Isn't this correct? Well, uh, it's correct. But I think Smotrich, Ben Gavir, before him, Netanyahu, uh, all of the prime uh, major Israeli leaders have constantly denied the existence of Palestinians. And in this, it's a strategy by saying you don't exist. No, I exist. No, you don't exist. No, you don't exist. So the discussions becomes rather than the settler colonial force and power that is taken over, it becomes a discussion that you try to affirm your history legacy in the face of this colonization. And I understand the need for us to constantly say Palestine, Palestinians, and try to provide physical evidence from this period, this period, coinage, passports, maps, and so on. I understand the act. But the thing is that Smotrich, Ben Gavir, uh, and all of the Israeli leaders, it is not their place to actually determine who is and who's not. 
in relations to Palestine. They are a settler colonial force that were brought in by the British and imposed on the Palestinians by both the Balfour Declaration first, uh, League of Nations, and then the United Nations imposed a settler colonial project on the Palestinians. So Smotrich, who his name is more indicative of his background from Ukraine, have the audacity and the temerity to stand up in the Western uh, capitals, the United States, France, and so on, and state, state, state with a straight face that Palestinians don't exist. The problem in here is multifaceted. One is he is able to say it. Second, that he's given the stage in these Western powers that continue to support the settler colonial project from its inception. And third, that they blame the Palestinians actually for complaining. So they arrest the people outside and they arrest the people that are saying, which means that what we have is that we are dealing with a settler colonial project, the Zionist settler colonial project that is incubated, supported, financed, and funded, and given the oxygen by the Western powers. And increasingly also some Arab and Muslim countries who are embracing uh, through the Abrahamic Accord and through all this nonsense of a peace uh, overture to the Arab world. Yesterday, the United Arab Emirates uh, signed an agreement of most favorable nation economic uh, open market uh, economic exchange with Israel. All this gets centers colon colonialism and these centers Palestine and Palestinians and makes all of us engage in this constant attempt to try to affirm ourselves. I don't care whether you say Palestine or Palestinians exist or don't exist, because the reality is that your attempt to try to indigenize yourself while eliminating indigenous population is the real problem. And the only way or the only reason that you are doing it is because you're supported by major powers. That is the only reason, as well as segments of the Arab and Muslim world. But that does not end the issue. The serious problem, Palestinians are there. They've been there and will continue to be there. It's just only a matter, a matter of uh, time that colonization will end. No colonial system uh, is, uh, can be permanent, nor any colonial system will have the longevity to deal with all its own contradiction. Again, if you... Uh, have read Fanon, uh, you will understand what a dying colonialism means. Zionism and uh, its project is a dying colonialism. Uh, vesting in power and resources is meaningless unless you understand all of the contradictions that are vested in a colonial project. Let's talk about uh, the recent events in Tel Aviv and the so-called uh, demonstrations for <coughs> democracy. What does this mean to Palestinian, if any, to Palestinians, if any? Israel had a democracy for Jews. So let's be at least decipher that among the Jewish communities, among the um, uh, Jewish Zionist community, they had uh, democracy. And even allowing some of the Arab of 1948 to participate, Palestinians, Druze, uh, the Bedouin, <laughs> to participate, but not on equal footing. The fact that the uh, the division within the Israeli society is emerging in the open is also a sign of the contradiction of the state makeup itself. Uh, because the state itself, while it's secular in nature and its foundation, 
it's now have the biggest segment in, in it is uh, a religious right-wing segment that is attempting to uh, rest and redirect the state in its own uh, vision, in its own way, which is, again, also uh, is genocidal. So you had a genocide of the, of the seculars and you have a genocide of the, uh, of the right. And as such, this breakdown within the machinery of the state is also nothing new in relations to colonial legacies and colonial uh, societies. And I think that the break is becoming uh, greater uh, with a Machiavellian uh, prime minister, uh, Netanyahu. His focus is survival, uh, is to protect himself. Uh, from all of the legal uh, troubles. So he's trying to neutralize the uh, judiciary uh, on the one hand, while also the settlers want to neutralize the judiciary from reviewing their own plans that are unfolding in the West Bank. So I would say that Zionism itself is having a major crisis among its own participants, that the project that they all have agreed upon early on in the formation of the state uh, and they were able to maintain it for a while. Again, you could go back to the contradictions between labor and uh, the Likud or Jabotinsky line and the liberal line of Zionism. That contradiction was there. Uh, they were able to put Humpty Dumpty together for a while, but I don't think that Humpty Dumpty can be maintained in the same way that it is. And I think that contradictions, that divisions in the Israeli society are coming to open. Absence from this all is any discussion about the Palestinians, right? Uh, so if we think about the notion of the present absent, we are the present absent in this so debate about democracy, uh, which more is like a hypocrisy when it comes to the Palestinians, but we are the present absent. There's an absence of discussions about the occupation. There's a complete absence of the 92 and 91, 92 Palestinians have been killed in 81 days in this year absence of the impact of empowering the settlers and empowering the right-wing, extreme right-wing, religious right-wing, the Kahanas, the Bengavirs, and so on, who were terrorists under Israeli law, for matter whatever we could take in that term uh, early on, and now they are driving the car. So that's where the uh, Zionist project itself, all the contradictions are coming to open. And uh, we'll have to wait and see how it unfolds. And the Palestinians are, in essence, still being absented from any discussions or any type of mentioning in this massive. Actually, there was a couple of uh, videos where Palestinians who raised or individuals who raised Palestinian flags were actually pushed out right. of the demonstration. So, again, you, there is democracy and there is hypocrisy on here. So a hypocrisy of democracy in these protests is out in the open. Last question, uh, when are we going to enter a real post-colonialist period? Well, we first have to admit that colonization has not ended because everybody thinks that because we sent out the troops, uh, the colonial troops, the British, the French, the uh, uh, Belgium, the Spanish, the Germans, so on, that colonization ends. We still have places in the world that is still experiencing direct colonization. Uh, Palestine, we mentioned one of them. But also there's places where the United States and France and England have territories. Uh, we're in this uh, current period and we're still speaking of territories, people that are subject 
to uh, a, a, a structure that has been placed in the early part of the 20th uh, century. So for me, the first step is to recognize that colonization has not ended. The post-colonial have maintained the colonial only absent the troops. And what we need is to begin to really uh, a project of decolonization. And I would begin by decolonization education because uh, education is so critical. It defines the self, it defines the engagement of the self with the world, it defines the self in relations to everyone else. The global educational system is Eurocentric. It is based on a replication, imitation, and projection of Eurocentricity and European, uh, North European as well as North Western world experience. And it is imposed as the global norm for everybody to imitate. So education is so paramount uh, with it. And with it, we have to deal with the contradiction that Eurocentricity is structured around race and a hierarchy of racial configuration, the whites on top and everybody is at the bottom. So we need to also reconfigure our notions of the human and how which human is valued and which human is seen as to be marginalized. So we have to dispense with this uh, matrix that is still in effect. And I am very critical because Muslims say we Islam is an anti-racist religion, but then go around and reflect and tend to uh, amplify and re replicate Eurocentricity in its racial paradigm. So those are elements that have to be uh, fundamental in moving forward. Then I would begin also with uh, decolonization of the economy uh, because uh, neoliberal economics, uh, capitalism in its obscene uh, uh, view, the massive privatization. Actually, today, Argentina is about to default on all its debt and its loan. So they, the troops went out and they sent the loan officers to indebt much of the global south in a continued system of strangulation. So the World Bank and the IMF, I call them as the bouncers of the world global economic system. They represent the banking industry and they continue to have a stranglehold. Argentina is the number one indebted country with its, uh, in terms of its uh uh, the overweight of uh, debt. Egypt is right there, second behind it. So we have to decolonize the economy and understand how to create an economy that centers the human and the needs of the human in a real sense, rather than centering the corporation and people feeling happy that Elon Musk is the richest person or Jeff Bezos, while they're not paying or contributing anything meaningful to uplifting the human life or the human conditions. They might be the richest person in, in material, but they have the utmost poverty of soul and address, addressing the needs of human beings uh, across the world. So we have to begin to de decolonize the economy in a real sense. So these are, for me, the issues that we have to grapple with. I think, you know, I mean, you hit it, uh, hit the nail right on the head. I mean, just as you were talking, I was thinking about, uh, you know, the U.S. spending billions of dollars to save uh, bankers and, and banks when, uh, you know, a few months ago, they, Congress uh, refused to help uh, students with their student loans. I mean... No, they have... challenged it in the Supreme Court. Yes. So the and, Supreme uh, Court, <laughs> no one talked anything about dumping money into the bankers. Yep. With a, well, with a busload. Yeah, I mean, it's very sad. It's really sad. 
Dr. Hatem Bazian, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk and Ramadan Kareem to you and to your family. Ramadan Mubarak, thank you, Jamal, for having me. It's a pleasure, always. That's the voice in the face of Dr. Hatem Bazian uh, talking about can Ramadan be a decolonization moment and the, the role and connection of, uh, you know, Muslim communities uh, throughout history to Jerusalem. Very compelling. Uh, Hatem always is on point, Jamal, and his uh, breadth and depth of understanding of the historical context of the Muslim kind of connection to Jerusalem and what's happening right now is just phenomenal, right? It's pretty impressive. It's very impressive. Well, I mean, it's also very timely, especially when uh, we are seeing uh, colonization in action. I mean, this is one of the last, uh, probably one of the few, I wouldn't say the last few colonial projects that is in, in, in action. And also, when you have every once in a while some uh, Zionist popping up and 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 saying that uh, you know uh, I'm the real Palestinian here, like Smotrich, <laughs> you know there is a whole town named after his family, the Smotrich in in uh, in in the Ukraine, right. who comes and and tries to claim uh, that uh, he or she is the indigenous uh, person for the land coming from thousands of uh, or hundreds of miles away. Uh, it, it, it's in a way, it's funny, but it's it's very. It's, it's very not dis- funny. It's not deceitful. funny because this. Is, yeah, it's not funny, and and in many ways, you know, and and Hatem speaks about this. The the kind of current context of the reinvigoration of the colonial project, with the election of uh, Netanyahu and its extremists, uh, you know, Knesset. You know, we have to be talking about the colonial project and how it's being implemented with the Netanyahu regime right now, we have to. And uh, the timeliness of this interview is is really spot on right now. So That's right. So uh, going to our next topic, Jess, uh, just a summary, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard about it or watch it on the news. An estimated uh, 600,000 people took uh, to the streets uh, in, in Tel Aviv and el- elsewhere, according to local news, uh, which would significantly weaken the country's judiciary. And, you know, this is because of uh, this is uh, Netanyahu's, Bibi Netanyahu's uh, proposal to weaken the judiciary uh, system. Uh, operations at uh, the Haifa and Ashdod ports and flights uh, out of Israel's uh, international airport, uh, Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv, were halted by strike actions. Uh, Israeli, one of uh, Israel's largest uh, banks, uh, Bank Leumi, also closed branches as part of the demonstrations, while uh, Israeli embassies uh, worldwide have been instructed to join the industrial action according to letters that have been distributed. And you got the New York, Israel uh, ambassador in, in New York uh, has, uh, has has resigned just uh, a, a day ago. Right. And uh, as you've mentioned, just the... Uh, you know, we've seen these uh, thousands of demonstrators. Uh, I've just watched a video this morning waving Israeli flags. Uh, uh, of course, you know, no one was shot. Uh, maybe, you know, the crowds were dispersed 
at best with uh, water cannons, Jess. Right. And then I saw this video where a demonstrator comes in carrying a Palestinian flag and, and immediately he's the beaten. police beaten. They go after him and he's right. uh, pushed out of the demonstration. So as you've mentioned, the big elephant in the room is the occupation, the Palestinian issue, the occupation and apartheid, and that's absent. Well, Jamal, if you want to talk about what's laughable, I'll tell you what's laughable. Seeing seeing hundreds of thousands of Israelis protest protesting Netanyahu when for 75 years there's been a concerted, deliberate attempt to erase indigenous Palestinians from historic Palestine and an occupation and land theft and imprisonment and, you know, all of these things that go with an occupation. Have you ever seen... 600,000 Israelis demonstrate against apartheid or demonstrate against an illegal occupation of Palestinian land? No, <clears throat> that's not just the elephant in the room that's not being talked about. That's this kind of schizophrenia that Israelis are, are kind of living day to day. They're willing to go to the beaches while Gaza is, uh, you know, basically shut down and uh, cut off from the rest of the world. They're willing to sit in their cafes in Tel Aviv or protest in the streets against Netanyahu, but not a peep about the occupation and the apartheid practices that are going on. That's that's kind of a schizophrenia, Jamal. That's That tells me that in some ways, no matter what the outcome of this challenge to Netanyahu right now, whether or not Netanyahu prevails or not, or the opposition prevails. This 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 apartheid regime is in the midst of like a grand denial right now in terms of what's happening. So basically, what we're seeing, two or more factions, but mostly two factions, right? Just two two European colonizers duking it out, right? You know, in real time on camera. Right. And basically over how to manage apartheid. The, the land they've stolen from Palestinian and apartheid. And when I've seen, like, of course, most of these demonstra demonstrations are happening in, you know, Tel Aviv and large cities, Haifa, etc. I'm locking Jaffa, even Jaffa, which is next to Tel Aviv. No one is talking mm -hmm. about that these demonstrations are happening on on towns and villages that have been ethnically cleansed from its Palestinian inhabitants by these demonstrators, whatever, parents, grandparents, and so on. I mean, that's that, exactly this, right. This is the irony of it all. They're, they're just, you know, attacking each other over this uh, judiciary uh, reform and, and, and denying the existence of Palestinians, if, even in, including some of their leaders who have said uh, Palestinians do not exist. They are not discussing the occupation. They are not discussing apartheid. And then at the same time, some of them uh, are asking Palestinians, which we call Palestinians in 1948, these are Palestinians who hold Palestinian uh, Israeli citizenship to join them in the demonstration. Join in the, demo to, to the demonstration to ask about what? About that their, well, their rights are not interrupted or affected, but it's fine that they don't, can't live in, in their towns and villages, you know, and, 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 and partake in their so-called 
Jewish democracy? Well, Jamal, I think, you know, that's exactly right. And I want to go back and amplify and uh, <clears throat> expand a little bit on something you said. This is not really a democracy protest, Jamal. It's a protest about how to best manage the occupation. It's a protest about how to best control the, the, the narrative and the media presentation of an apartheid state. Netanyahu's approach is we need to... And, and and this is what's weird. He's saying, let's just be honest about it. We are an apartheid state. We have no democracy here. We're going we're gonna, to you know, ram through. I'm going to ram through these judicial overhauls. I want to control the country so that I can pre- protect the, the kind of extremist, terrorist, you know, extreme right-wing view of how to manage the land here in Palestine, in historic Palestine, in the apartheid state. Then you have the so-called, I don't want to call them left, but you have the other side, Jamal, the other kind of side of the European equation of of the uh, of Israelis who want to say, no, we want we want a happy face of apartheid Israel. We want people. We want to whitewash it. We we feel like we can present this facade of a democracy if we do it this way. So, you know, all the crocodile tears that we get from Thomas Friedman and all the uh, supporters of the apartheid state here and in Europe who are lamenting what's happening in the in 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 Tel Aviv right now no, are no, missing the boat. Not only this, Jess, but it's even worse than this because you've mentioned the media here. Some are trying to spin it like, oh, look at this, watch that. You have 600,000 and they put percentage. This is 600,000 uh, demonstrating in, 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 in Israel. It's like having something like millions uh, demonstrating in, in the United States and that's democracy. They're trying to use it as an example that this, this is- Yeah, has but a spin. You know, the has but a spin without, again, talking about all the Palestinians which actually represent the majority uh, on the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. I mean, people don't don't talk about that. You have uh, more than 2 million Palestinians are under lockdown in Gaza, like in the largest open air prison. You have 2.8 million Palestinians in the West Bank right now watching their homes destroyed, watching their properties being taken over by these colonial settlers who have been transferred, which is a violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. And then you have the Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship who are there living basically as second-class citizens. And they don't talk about that. No, that's exactly right, Jamal. And and I think it's important for our viewers and listeners to know that with all this hysteria about the so-called democracy protests in Tel Aviv, they're losing sight of a, a ruling that happened uh, in this last week, which is the Knesset reversed uh, a, a law and a rule that now allows the colonial illegal settlers to settle in areas of the West Bank that were for- forbidden before. So not 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 only are there um, these kind of grotesque uh, uh, you know examples of land theft and occupation and arrest and murder for that reason, now the colonial expansion and its project to take over more Palestinian land is being furthered by the removal of laws that will allow these illegal colonial settlers to take even more land in the West Bank. Have you heard anything about that on the, on the mainstream media, either here or in, or in the European or other press? I haven't, Jamal. So 
you know, there's a lot of hand-waving right now about the poor Israelis who are threatened by this. But the the reality is on the ground, the occupation is apace. It's, it's going forward. It's being activated. It's being facilitated. And no one is talking about that. And moving on just to the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been trying to put his uh, best face on what's going on and traveling. <laughs> and, and this is the sad thing. And actually being oh, yeah. like, greeted exactly. and accepted by world leaders. Yeah, I don't know in, why. In, in, in the UK. Yeah. And, and so, so he uh, today agreed to suspend a planned judiciary reform until, and this is people have to read the fine print, until the next parliament session, after, uh, which, is, which, is really, uh, which is really will follow the Passover recess uh, in April. So we're not talking about postponement for months or years or what have you. He's talking about few days. So he, today, Netanyahu agreed with one of, uh, of the Knesset or his ministers, uh, basically the terrorist, uh, Itmar Ben-Gvir, right. that the Judiciary Overhaul Bill would be given an extension to the next session. But then again, you have to read when that next session will happen, and that's in, in April. And as part of the agreement, and which, by the way, I hate to, 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 to burst everyone's uh, bubble, but uh, the I got something here that Netanyahu basically merely postponing this showdown by a month, and he signed a document. Uh, someone sent me a copy of this document uh, granting it Marvin Gevir the 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 convict, convicted basically uh, t- terrorist uh, a, a, a private militia which is basically <laughs> the the national guard of Israel he's putting it under his co- command and I'm posting here this is uh, if, if it's going to be very clear but that's basically a copy of of the, the of the declaration yeah of the declaration that Netanyahu sent Ben Gavir because he was threatening he and Smotrich and others that they will withdraw from the coalition and which means his government will collapse. I mean this guy is willing to do anything to hold on to power. I mean well, we we're talking about despots in other parts of the world. I mean this guy he will do anything. So for the time being because they said listen uh, you, you know, if you're going to postpone or you're going to cancel the judiciary reform that we we pro- helped you to put on the table, we are going to leave your coalition. And so he made a deal. And now you have a terrorist in charge of the National car- Guard. Right. You know, those are the ones who basically manage the occupied Palestinian That's right. towns in the West Bank. That's right. Uh, they are put under his command, so he doesn't need to use his terrorist colonial settlers to do his bidding for him. He can use Israel's national guard. Well, that that that's exactly right, Jamal. And I think that you know when I when I hear the statements coming from the State Department, their concern about what Netanyahu is doing around the judicial reform, it makes me nauseated to read these. State Department, uh, U.S. State Department and White House official statements, again, because they're, 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 they're closing their eyes, their ears, 
and their mouths to the reality of what's happening on the ground right now. And the reality of the ground is that you have Ben Gavir, a convicted terrorist who is controlling a militia that is going to steal more Palestinian land. You have Smotrich, who called for the wiping off the map of a, of a Palestinian village and claiming that he's a real Palestinian. So you have all these kind of crazy right-wing extremist elements kind of singing loudly in the Israeli government and not a peep, not a peep coming from the White House, not a peep coming from the State Department. They're, they're well, I'm more- gonna I'm going to take it further just because I'm not even worried about a peep or something that they'll say. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about, no, I'm actually worried about something they'll say and that they will praise and hail uh, Netanyahu, you know, for this we'll brave act of postponing. Yeah, they're going to do know, that. But I have breaking. Thing. I have breaking news for everybody at the White House and the State Department. You might get a two to three week reprieve of a hold on this judicial change, but it's going to happen. One of two things is going to happen. Netanyahu will push this through, which I, which is what I believe is going to happen. Or the government is going to go into chaos again. There'll be a sixth election in less than a few years. And Netanyahu will get reelected again. I mean, the, the, the question that I want to put to, uh, to, to the State Department in the United States, when will you all see that it's not in the U.S. strategic interest to support an apartheid state? How long is it going to take you all to realize that your support of an apartheid state is undermining the U.S. interests and credibility throughout the world? You know, we're already seeing the sea changes occurring, Jamal, with China, for example, brokering a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We see lots of these little changes occurring where U.S. credibility in the region is really taking a nosedive. And I would say Continued support for this oppressive apartheid regime will only further weaken the United States' uh, strategic role in the region. Not only this, Jess, we talked about this last week. We talked about the new poll, right. the new poll amongst right. Democrats and the shift towards their support to Palestinians. Well, of so, course. So the State Department, the administration is disconnected with its own constituency exactly. of especially young Democrats, people exactly. like the squad in Congress. And then what do you have when we, we also remember we exposed, we talked about uh, uh, the Senate uh, minority leader, Chuck Schumer. Where does he live in the midst of all of this? He goes to friends to, to visit his buddy, Benjamin Netanyahu, and then he goes and visits Modi. I mean, they are so disconnected. <laughs> I mean, he, he couldn't pick worst people no. in the world no i mean and, and yeah. for his photo up to go and 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 hug benjamin netanyahu because they want to live in the past so you have which in my opinion you have now a, a the the old guards in the democratic party they want to hold on the past where they just can't keep throwing palestinians under the bus to keep promoting Israeli interests in, 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 in this country against the interests of the people, by the way, which was... Absolutely. And that's the point, Jamal. The United States is not serving the interests of the people of the United States, and it's not serving the interests of the United States in general. So you have the Chuck Schumers, the Hakeem Jeffries, who represent the Democrats who are supposed they to be live liberal. They live in La La Land, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's true, man. And, you know... 
I hate to say this, but if Trump gets reelected, which is a real possibility, you know, that's going to get a lot worse. Well, you know, I disagree with you about two things. One, I don't think it's going to get any worse. <laughs> I mean, before we used to think, well, if Trump left, things will get better. But I don't see it getting better. I mean, here we yeah, are yeah. Dragged, into, dragged into a proxy war all the way in Ukraine, spending billions of dollars. We have a financial crisis where you have banking institutions collapsing and we're pouring millions to bail out the bankers when when uh, the, we're refusing to bail out uh, American students for $10,000 each. They couldn't find the money. They had to take it all the way to the Supreme Court to go against this. But write the check for the Ukraine, write a check to Israel. And, and I don't see, you know, to tell you the truth, if, if Trump came... In, at least I would have known we wouldn't have been engaged in the war in Ukraine. Yeah, well, I think that's a very good point, uh, Jamal. Because and the other point I want to disagree with, yeah, you, yeah, and usually yeah, yeah. you are uh, right at, about many things, is that I think uh, Netanyahu eventually will end up uh, seeking asylum in New Jersey at the Kushner's <laughs> at the Kushner's house or Mar-a-Lago or Mar-a-Lago. Uh, yeah, I think I think his luck might have ran out he's I, hanging, he's I, that, that, with a thread that that's something i would disagree with i think uh we we may be underestimating the power of the extreme white supremacists in israel right now jamal because he's got the support to make this happen but whether or not he's in new jersey or tel aviv it's looking pretty grim now for palestinians You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll talk to you next week. See you next week. Mm-hmm.